Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we're discussing payroll giving. Emily, have you ever tried to use payroll giving? Uh, I'm going to be really honest and embarrassed here, which is I'm going to say that until you sent me this script, I had genuinely never even heard of payroll giving. So... No, certainly with intent. I have never tried to use it. Um, Can you shed a little bit of light on payroll giving for me? So on the face of it, payroll giving should be an attractive and relatively hassle-free way for charities to raise money. It's a mechanism that allows the UK taxpayer to make regular donations to charities of their choice directly from their pay packet. The donations are tax-free and the employers can choose to match what employees give and can deduct these amounts from their profits. The administration is carried out by government-approved agencies and it was first launched by the Conservatives in 1987. And in the first 30 years of its operation, so up to 2017, it generated more than £2 billion for charity, which... Not bad. Not bad. Better than a kick in the teeth. But at the same time, in 2016, the charity sector's total income was £73.1 billion. So, in comparison, not great. Like, it's not that much. It's extraordinary that it's been going for 30 years as well. I mean, you know, it's not, this is not a new thing. It's been going on for three decades. And I mean, certainly on the face of it, it sounds like a win-win situation. You know, donors get to give tax-free and increase the impact of their donations through match funding from their employer. And then charities benefit from the regular income, the increased donations, again, from that match funding. And then as well, companies get something really positive to put on their employee benefits lineup. So, you know, It sounds like something that should be a wildly successful initiative. Right. But despite this, it seems as though payroll giving has never really taken off. And certainly we don't know as much about it, perhaps, as we could. I mean, currently more than 80% of companies in the UK do not offer this. Just 4% of UK employees participate in payroll giving. And most people, including myself, don't even really know what it is. What I found really funny was that if you search for payroll giving on the Third Sector website, you find that every four years or so, there's a piece that says something like, what's wrong with payroll giving? Or boost needed for payroll giving? Or is payroll giving a relic of the 80s? So what is actually wrong with this as a concept? Well, I actually wrote the last one of those in 2017, the one about Relic of the 80s. And one of the issues that came up there was about awareness. Uh, As we've discussed, it just hasn't been marketed as well or as aggressively as it could have been, Um, even just as a kind of field test when we went to switch on the microphones and said to our producer, we're going to talk about payroll giving. She said, well, what's that? And, you know, I, I don't think it is something people are aware of. And it's something that government hasn't really pushed in a way it could have done. But another big issue is that it is very much of its time. It was set up to work with the way that manual payrolls worked back in the 80s and the way that people stayed in single jobs or with the same company for much longer then than they do now. Um, And it's really tricky, actually, to transfer it between employers. So it just hasn't really made that jump into the modern world of work. We are missing that sense of longevity that would make it all worthwhile because we don't have those lifetime careers anymore. We work across sort of portfolio careers where we do five years here, five years there. Um, So, yes, of its time, a relic. I thought the word relic was uh, a very good one in your article. (laughs) But it might not be a relic for much longer because we have a new venture by five major charities which is looking to step in and turn things around for payroll giving. So this week, a collaboration between Bernardo's Crisis, the Royal British Legion, RNIB and WaterAid launched. And it wants to make payroll giving more accessible and encourage more people to take part in it. 
The charities have set up an independent business called We Are Good Giving to help with this. It's wholly owned by the five charities and was set up with help from the innovation agency Good Innovation. So by using modern digital fundraising techniques and technology efficiencies, We Are Good Giving plans to double the number of UK payroll givers and raise an additional £150 million for charities by 2030. Right. So we got this press release earlier in the week and I just found it really intriguing. So I called Daisy O'Reilly Weinstock, who is a director at The Good Innovation, and I had a chat with her about what the business is actually planning to do and also why she thinks payroll giving isn't as popular as it should be on paper. Her take was that there are three main problems that We Are Good Giving needs to figure out how to solve. First up, there isn't really a lot of information around on why companies should offer this to their employees. Like, sure, it sounds great, but there's never been any study or evidence generated to show that employees really value having that option available and that it would make them more likely to pick a particular company to work for. I think it would be so interesting to see some research on this. Because on the one hand, and this is purely anecdotally, if people are looking at a benefits package as part of their job hunting process, I would say they would traditionally be looking for things like your annual leave allowances and whether you can buy extra days, maternity and paternity leave policies, the kind of childcare support you can get, maybe gym memberships, bicycle schemes, stuff like that. But they probably, you know, be less likely to look at something like, you know, a giving scheme. Mm. However they probably would be more likely to look at payroll giving through the lens of a company's CSR profile. And we know that in the last five years, people are becoming more concerned about corporate social responsibility and the kind of values that the organisations they work for exercises. Um, So there could well be like a value piece there around it. Hmm. I'm just (laughs) not really convinced that anyone really knows enough about the ins and outs of payroll giving and how it works to be able to sort of benefit from that. Right. Um, And so next up, Daisy said that despite all of the benefits for charity, it is a donation, match funding, you know, getting those regular donations in and so on. One thing they don't really get from the arrangement is data. And data is exactly what charities need in order to build a relationship with their donors. So it's not just about the money, which is important, but about how they're making a difference to that charity's cause. And that affects donors too. If you make a decision to donate on day one at a company, four years later, you might not remember who you've donated to. If you, know, if you haven't been able to have that kind of relationship where you're understanding the impact of your choices, getting involved with a cause you're passionate about, and it might be you want to do more. You know, for charities, part of that relationship building that data is about actually, did you want to run a marathon for us or do a cake sale or volunteer or have some other involvement that's not just this financial transaction one. And then again, particularly if donors or employees are going to move on to another company and it's a lot of work to transfer it over, like we said, they might just not bother. And it's also a faff to sign up for, or as Daisy put it, just a terrible customer journey. <laughs> right. Um, right. And like after I did that piece in 2017, I was like, hey, I should sign up for this. This sounds, you know, sounds good. It sounds important. And I basically had to go hunting around in the bowels of our company intranet to find out how to do it. And then it wanted me to print out like this three or four page form fill it in and then post it to some address somewhere to get the ball rolling, <laughs> which it was just tough. And I'm, I'm literally standing in the building where my payroll is managed and I can just like literally whip out my phone, go on the charity's website and make a donation in like the time it would have taken me to walk to the printer. Right. You know, and wait for the documents to print. So in the end, I just gave up and set up a direct debit, which is tough because I lose out, the charity loses out, but it, it just, 
even after I'd written this piece being like, this is such a great mechanism. Why aren't more people doing it? I was like, yeah, this isn't worth it. I'm not doing it. So tricky for you to take advantage. And once again, this is the first time even hearing of the fact that our company runs a payroll giving scheme. I don't know if this is just me being more uneducated than the average person would be. But, you know, it's definitely something that I should know about. Um, And I I didn't know that it was something that Haymarket Media runs. So, you know, I think it is very interesting that Daisy flagged this more broadly, though, as a bad customer journey. It suggests that your experience might not be just that out of the ordinary, especially when you think about the fact that everywhere else in the fundraising world, there is this big emphasis on frictionless giving. So trying to make that move from, you know, thinking you'd like to donate to actually giving the money. Organisations are doing everything they can to make that as instantaneous as possible, whether it's through mobile giving or contactless payments. It does seem really strange that this should still be so complicated. Yeah, and this is what We Are Good Giving wants to tackle. So Desi pointed out that given digital has moved on so much in recent years, there should be a mechanism that would help with payroll giving. Um, So she pointed out to digital pension passports, which are a new mechanism which makes it easier for employees to transfer their pensions when they move jobs. And she was saying that, you know, that could be one model that would make it easier to transfer payroll giving between employees, but could also allow charities to have more of a direct relationship with them. And she was saying there will almost certainly be a consumer facing product, like some kind of app or platform that makes it easier for individuals to sign themselves up and or to sign up through the company. Um, And, you know, they're also looking at how the process could be made simpler for HR, for payroll and for finance to manage. And that could hopefully help to bring more companies in. She pointed out that historically, the scheme has tended to target really big companies like Accenture or Goldman Sachs and so on, because, you know, that does give access in one go to loads of employees because they will tend to have high earners on the payroll. Yeah. But we know that big organisations aren't everything. Obviously, in the charity sector, you know, you have these massive charities. So have the small organisations. I think the same is for businesses. And making the whole thing simpler could bring in loads of SMEs that currently just aren't being engaged and maybe, like we said, don't even really know about the scheme. Um, So at the moment, We Are Good Giving is researching and speaking to lots of charities and companies about where those kind of pain points are and thinking about what some of the solutions might look like. It'll be really interesting to see what the sort of results from that research are going to be. And I think you know, something else that I'm finding very interesting about this project is the structure of We Are Good Giving itself. So it's wholly owned by these five charities, but it's operating as a separate company. And they've appointed a managing director, Richard Pacman, who is an entrepreneur and a digital expert who is going to run it for them. And this is part of something that Good Innovation and others have been working on for a while. Um, so it's all part of this school of thinking within fundraising that people don't necessarily just want to mindlessly give money to these massive charities and sort of have the charity go away and sort of rather paternalistically do good work for them. People want to be involved, they want to be closer to the action. And for that, charities need to innovate. And to do that, they need to be smaller and more flexible and more agile. And the analogy that comes up time and time again, and does kind of explain the situation really well, even though I find it such a cliche, and I've said it so often, but I, it, it's this speedboats versus oil tankers scenario that, that, you know, one is small and nippy and the other has a massive turning circle and can't stop and slow down or turn direction easily. And obviously, these big organisations are there, they exist, they are doing good work, but they can't suddenly shrink down and become speedboats out of nowhere. 
So part of the solution for this, that, that Good Innovation has been kind of really championing, is that large charities can invest in these little sort of offshoot businesses, which can be agile, change what they're doing quickly if it's not working, experiment a bit more. If they fail, it's not the end of the world. You know, they tried it, they can try something else rather than have you know, organisations investing their entire selves into this. And so what We Are Good Giving hopes is going to happen is that whatever solutions it comes up with can be monetized to help generate funds for the five charities that own it. And then at the same time, it's going to be looking to develop broader innovations that could help the entire sector raise money and double that payroll giving income over the next nine years. Exactly. So, you know, one thing that Daisy said to me that really struck me was we think that there is so much potential in payroll giving for the whole sector. We set up this company to drive innovation, not because we want to own all of this, but because we want to light a fire under the sector and to say this is an unloved, underappreciated opportunity, which we should be grabbing. If we start the ball rolling, we hope other people will come in and join us. So I think it's going to be really interesting to hear what they come up with in the next few months. And hopefully it is something that's going to breathe new life into payroll giving. 30 years in, we could finally see it living up to its potential. And perhaps in the meantime, I need to go down into the bowels of the internet and see if I can find the forms (laughs) that you've been talking about. Or whether we maybe we have a new streamlined digital solution for this, um, which has been put in place in the next three years. Who can say? Yeah, this is the thing, like the, the whole of our HR system has been revamped since then. So maybe it's easier now. I just haven't looked. I need to go find out. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I mean, I identify with this bit about not really getting going until you're 30 years in, right? I've, I've <laughs> long held a theory that your 30s are actually the best decade for hitting your stride. And OK, it's been a rocky start for us with the pandemic. But it hasn't but been boring. It I hasn't mean, been boring. And I am boring. clinging to that belief very strongly. <laughs> that this is this is where it gets good. And so the same could be true for payroll giving. I'm sure it is. So each week, of course, we bring you our Good News Bulletin, a collection of interesting or unusual stories that we have spotted in the charity sector. Rebecca, what do you have this week? So first up, we've got a story about a couple from Abingdon in Oxfordshire who are planning to attempt to complete all 90 of the events featured in the Tokyo Olympics during the 17 days the competition is on. They're not professional athletes they're not you know i think they've they've been on a hardcore fitness training sort of regime i think in the last few months but they're not athletes to start with uh so charlotte nichols and her partner stuart bates have been training with the help of olympic athletes to take on the challenge of performing feats such as synchronized swimming routines pole vaulting and dressage so they came up with the challenge to mark the 10th anniversary of the death of bates's brother spencer who very sadly died from motor neuron disease They're calling it the Spenny Olympics in his honour, and they're halfway through their target of raising £10,000 in aid of the Motor Neuron Disease Association. Um, So British Athletics has thrown its support behind the pair, and current and former Olympians are helping them, uh, including Holly Bradshaw, who is the British pole vault record holder. Uh, She's teaching them at their local track. Um, And they will begin the challenge with a 234-kilometre cycle road race, and their plan is to kind of spread out the most physically demanding events evenly through the 17 days. Ending with the marathon. Um, oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so for team sports, apparently the couple have, will join local sports clubs to compete in a match. But for one-on-one sports, such as tennis or judo, they're going to go head-to-head. I think the only exception to that was boxing. Uh, but <laughs> Fair enough. To do that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and I mean, this... It just, it just seemed like such a bonkers challenge and brilliant. That's brilliant. I mean... I oh wow I mean that is that's genuinely quite a superhuman feat I think I'm just thinking back over what you said dressage how are they going to do dressage presumably go to a local riding school like at the lower levels of dressage it's not 
quite as it doesn't quite look so much like dancing let's put it that way yeah i was gonna say that is the one where you make the horses dance isn't it yeah i mean so it's not always to music that's the freestyle dressage you can do it not to music and it's it's more about the kind of um the sort of the training of the horse is it using its body properly and somewhere between like horse yoga and and dancing more like is it is it is it using its body properly and is it is it obeying all the commands and the instructions so you have a set of like movements that can be as simple as like turn left here have a trot here do a circle that sort of thing so they could always do it with hobby horses if they're really pressed you know old broom handle sock on the end (laughs) they could do um so yeah i mean i what i thought was was because they've got a pole vaulting champion like because i've always wondered this right how do you discover you're good at pole vaulting i did pole vaulting in secondary school. You've done-, I've done pole vault. Have I? No, I haven't. Sorry, I'm thinking of a high jump. But I guess it's just like a high jump, but you just yeah. add a stick. Yeah, but like, I've never I've never met anybody that's given that a try. Like, how do you discover your... I suppose you have to just be really good at athletics and then you go to an athletics club and somebody lets you have a go at it. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just... And listen, I assume you have to be quite good at the running and the jumping anyway. So I feel like it's unlikely that I will discover, you know, hitherto unknown talents for pole vaulting. I feel like there must be a correlation between pole vaulting and the high jump. Like if you, if you, if yeah. you are showing great promise at the high jump, they probably just go, oh, "All right, you know, you're decent at that. Let's let's put a stick in the mix and, and maybe, see how you go." Maybe, uh, yeah. So, yeah, this just sounds like an excellent challenge. Uh, lots of fun, but also exhausting and quite intimidating. So, yeah, hats off to them. Yes, Charlotte and Stuart. Best of luck to you both. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, so, yeah, if you want more information or you want to donate, visit www.spennylympics.com I'll pop the link in the show notes but Spenny Olympics is S-P-E-N-N-Y-L-Y-M-P-I-C-S dot com um, but yeah, I'll pop that all in the show notes as well so people can find out a bit more about it I'm sure it will be medals all around yes Emily, what have you got for us? I've got, well I'm back with my conservation corner um, <laughs> uh, once again I can't remember what I had last time I think it was maybe pangolins um, but this and we week also, we also had lions on last week's episode uh, which we our producer did. Lindsay brilliantly put in for us which I thought was great thank you Lindsay um, but yes, so I, I've got this conservation corner special, which is that a baby beaver has been born on Exmoor for the first time in 400 years after the National Trust successfully reintroduced two adults into the habitat last January. Oh, super cute. So, so cute. <laughs> so the cute. Chari- yeah, so cute. Um, the charity released the pair of Eurasian beavers onto the Holnacott estate in Somerset at the beginning of 2020. And they did this as part of a project to ease flooding and increase biodiversity in the habitat. So these semi-aquatic rodents have not been at all idle since they were released. They have managed to transform in the last year the unmanaged woodland in their 2.7 hectare enclosure into an open wetland that has boosted the wildlife on the estate and brought a whole new kind of, um, you know, ecosystem of animals into the area. So they've definitely had a far more productive pandemic than I have. (laughs) I feel like there might be a new ecosystem living beneath my sink, but, you know, that's that's about it. Uh, and while they've been doing that, they have also found the time to start a family. Recent camera footage uh, from the Trust has shown the six-week-old kit swimming to the family lodge with its mother. Um, so the Beaver Project is part of the National Trust's Riverlands Programme, which aims to increase the biodiversity in UK rivers and tackle the effects of climate change. 
Um, very importantly, the new arrival does not yet have a name. But the National Trust is going to be shortly putting out a call for suggestions via social media. So definitely get your thinking caps on um, and think about what we can call this adorable little bundle of beaver joy. Um, Rebecca, do you have any suggestions to throw into the ring? Uh, oh, yeah. OK, you're going to have to come back to me on that because I did not think about it. Um, Emily, do you have any suggestions? Um, the only thing I could really think of was Paul Bunyan, um, which is I, when I was studying in America, it was like a famous log jammer, um, which is obviously what beavers are quite quite famous for. The, fa- the most famous lumberjack in America and Canada. Um, uh, so I, th- I also just think Paul is quite a good name for a beaver. Um, obviously we don't know if it's a boy or a girl yet, but you know, I think, I also think, you know, Paul could be a gender neutral name. You don't know. That's true. That's true. I mean, hmm, maybe I would go for like, cause I would associate beavers with that bit in the line, the witch in the wardrobe where they take them in and they have like a really nice dinner, um, before the adventure gets all dark again. Uh, so I kind of think maybe one of the children's names from the line, the witch in the wardrobe or something. Like, <laughs> you, I, you said that and I immediately went crumpet. crumpet <laughs> oh, even better. I was thinking like Susan or Edmund, but yeah, crumpet, crumpet also good. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember that they ate crumpets anyway. Well, there you go, National Trust. You can have those two for free. Paul and Crumpet um, are the suggestions in the first sentence <laughs> corner. But we can't wait to see what the name is going to be. I suspect it's not going to be either of those. No. Uh, in the meantime, we'll be back with another episode soon. So make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Emily Burt. And I'm Rebecca Cooney. And our producer is Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. We will see you next week. 